The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I will remember their sin no more. Pray with me. Father, we read this text of hundreds and hundreds of years, approximately 700 years before Christ, about a promise of a covenant. A promise of a time when you would wipe away sin. And we worship you and we thank you that you kept your promise and you brought that covenant to pass. You have indeed made a new covenant. You've indeed made provision for sin and we are thankful for that and we worship you for that this morning on Easter. We celebrate it. We celebrate you. Thank you, Lord. And Father, I pray now that as we open up your scriptures, that you would come, you would commission your Holy Spirit to come and be in our midst here, to be at work in our minds and hearts to turn us towards you to cause us to think about and to understand the beauty of the cross, the wonder of Christ. Give grace to us to understand and give grace to us to lay down our burdens at his feet. Pierced, laying down and risen up, and now reigning. Give grace to us, Lord, that we would bow before him and worship him. To his honor and to our great good, I pray that. Amen. One of my favorite films is the movie The Mission. It's kind of old. It's a 1986 film starring Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. And it's set in the era in which the Europeans were coming over to the Americas and discovering the Americas and beginning to settle in them. And it's about the, the building, the construction, and then the eventual destruction of a religious mission site in the jungles of Latin America. In the course of the story, Robert De Niro's character goes through a transformation from a ruthless soldier to actually becoming a priest. And as he's going through that change, in an effort to cleanse himself and to atone for his past sins and to make up for them in some way, he's assigned a certain penance to perform. And so during several scenes of the movie, you see him struggling over rivers and up mountains and whatnot, carrying this large net that forms a big sack in which has been placed all the various military paraphernalia from his past, his sword and his armor and weapons and whatnot. It's a huge thing, and he's carrying it over the river, up the, the stream, and up this mountainside. It's a tremendous burden that he's carrying. This thing would be hard to carry down the hall of this building. But it, through the wilderness there, it's snagging on rocks and branches. And it's a big load. And why is he carrying that? I guess if he, if he suffers enough, it'll make up for his past. Or maybe to prove that he's actually genuine. Whatever the official explanation, the misguided sorrow of the whole situation is gripping. 
You look at him and you hurt for him. And anyone who has read and understood the passage that we're going to look at today would have good news to give to this man and to other people just like him who are struggling in life, laboring under a crushing load, trying to carry it along and become good enough to warrant acceptance. You'd have a message to give to him if you understood this passage. There is a way to be made perfect. That's what's required. There is a way to be made perfect, pure in God's sight, and accepted by him, and therefore by God's people. And it has nothing to do with any penance you perform, any works you do, any of your particular behaviors. So lay down that burden and come to this way, Jesus. You'd have a message to give to him that would be good news for that character and for real life people like you and me. That's the message that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning on Easter. Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 18 is what we're going to look at. And here on this Easter morning, my hope and my prayer is as we look at this passage, that you would, your mind and your heart would be turned to and you would be caused to reflect again on the cross, what Christ did there, the wonder of it. That you would see it anew and you'd, your heart would be engaged and you'd be gripped by something there. That you would see there is great hope here. There is a way I can come and lay my burdens on here and be made perfect in God's sight. And you'd find release in that. That's my hope this morning. You, many of us here, Christian and non-Christian both, are carrying burdens that will crush the life out of you if you try to carry them. If you take it for real and try to carry that burden, it'll crush the life out of you. And God does not mean for you to carry it. He means for you to leave it at the cross. Hebrews 10, 11 to 18 talks about that. Before I read the passage, though, let me give a little bit of context to it. As we read this passage, you're going to see that obviously it's talking about priests and sacrifices of various sorts. And really what we're doing is we're coming in at the end of a long discussion. The book of Hebrews is about these sorts of things. And this is kind of the conclusion of the matter. So we're coming in the middle here. And what the book of Hebrews is trying to do is to show that all these various aspects, priests and sacrifice and whatnot, these aspects of Old Testament worship, were not intended, were never intended to be ends in themselves. They were actually pointers towards something else. Like signs on a highway. If you're traveling down I-80 coming to Salt Lake, you see Salt Lake 50 miles and you don't think, oh, I'm at Salt Lake. You think, in 50 miles, I'll be at Salt Lake. There's another one, Salt Lake 25 miles. I'm getting closer, but I'm not there yet. These are signs in the Old Testament that are pointing towards something in the future. Hebrews uses the idea of shadows. The shadow that indicates there is a reality, but the shadow is not the reality. It's just from the reality. Pressing on towards something else. So a large part of the book of Hebrews is about that, and our, we're looking at the conclusion of it right here in chapter 10. It's going to discuss how one is not made perfect before God and how one is. So that introduction, let me read the text, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, 
the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's our text. And the main point of this passage, the main point of this conclusion of much of Hebrews, is that Christ's sacrifice alone, Christ's sacrifice alone can take away sin. So trust Him. Christ and Christ alone, His sacrifice all by itself, alone, leaves a person perfect in God's sight. So He's the one you should trust. He's the one you should turn all of your heart and all of your allegiance to. Christ and Him alone. His sacrifice takes away sin. That's the main point of this section. I'm going to approach that by making three observations from the passage. The first one is rooted in verse 11. I'm going to say it a little more broadly than just the language of that verse. Here's the first observation. Nothing whatsoever, nothing at all, nothing whatsoever apart from Christ can take away sin. Nothing. Not even things that God told people to do, like the sacrifices. And if they don't work, nothing else does either. Nothing whatsoever apart from Christ is sufficient to take away sin. And that is what we need. We must have our sin removed. Sin is a reality that we have to deal with as human beings, as people. We have to face it. We don't like to because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. But it's the first and foremost reality that we have to deal with about ourselves. We're going to be honest. To use the words of Job, we drink iniquity like water. It's part and parcel of our lives. In the book of Genesis, God, God himself described human beings before the flood as the intention of their hearts are always wicked all the time. Talk about negative our hearts always twisted all the time before the flood. And then after the flood, in chapter 8, same thing. He says the very same thing two chapters later. This is the reality within us. Now, we, we talk to each other. We dressed up today. We all look nice. And we'll greet each other and say hello and ask how you're doing and ask about school or work or the grandkids. And we all look pretty good on the outside. But there's something that's real and dark on the inside. Squeeze yourself and watch what comes out. If you squeeze a bottle of orange juice and orange juice comes out, it's because orange juice was on the inside. Squeeze yourself. Watch what happens when pressure arises in your life. Or somebody crosses you. Somebody does something that you don't like. What happens? Anger comes out. Frustration. Scheming. Manipulation. Theft. Lying. Lust. All that comes out of us because all of that is inside of us. 
That's where sin is rooted on the inside, and it's the reality that we must face, we must see. God sees it. God sees it very clearly, and he sees it very clearly for the rejection of him and his nature that it is. And the Bible is very clear that the wrath of God is coming against all sin and unrighteousness, bearing down on us. And in the Old Testament, God set up a system to sort of deal with that wrath. Sort of. Now, it, it comes up in the Bible, it's in the law, God gave it, so it's not wrong, it's not evil, it's just insufficient. It's pointing towards something, it's not the end in itself. There's a whole family of people in the nation of Israel called the Levites, who are priests. They have various jobs, but some of those folks, their job was literally to offer physical sacrifices at the altar of the temple or the tabernacle. Constantly. Over and over again. Day after day, animals were brought to them. Now, depending on what time of year it was, what kind of sacrifice it was, the things kind of varied. But generally speaking, the animal would be brought to these priests. They would lay their hand on it to transfer sin figuratively onto the animal. Then they would slit its throat, drain out its blood, and burn it on the altar. And then repeat with the next animal. Over and over and over again. On some holidays... When many people brought many sacrifices, there might be tens of thousands of animals over the course of a couple of days killed in this way, offered as sacrifices. It happened over and over again. The priests constantly dealt in blood. God had said, sacrifice this animal and its blood will cover over your sin and shield you from my wrath. Like you're hiding under the blood. Then repeat. Now, sacrifice this animal, and its blood will cover over your sin and shield you from my wrath. Now, repeat. Sacrifice this animal over and over and over and over again. Verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the very same sacrifices. That's just a fact. If you've read the Old Testament, if you were, especially if you're a Levite, you know, yep, that's true. I do that over and 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 over again. And here's the intended conclusion, which can never take away sin. I'm supposed to observe that, which can never take away sin. It's like Tylenol covering over pain. You break your arm, maybe you have an infection of some sort. You take Tylenol, you feel okay for a little bit. But when the dose wears off and you stop, the pain returns. It's just masking it. It's not actually dealing with the issue. Something else has to heal the fracture or, or chase away the infection. Now, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It never actually works. How do we know that? Because for 1,500 years, over and over and over and over again, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and whatnot were poured out. For 1,500 years this is happening. And at the end of it, it's just as necessary as it was when it started. If you took two tablets of Tylenol every four to six hours for 1,500 years and then stop for a day, and you thought, man, it hurts just like it did 1,500 years ago. You should conclude, I need a different course of treatment. This is not fixing it. That's the message in the sacrificial system. It's not getting at the problem, actually. It's 
covering it over for a little while, but it's not getting at the root. Is there not some other solution? These things don't remove sin, but still God told people to offer them. Why? Because he's trying to make them ask a question. I kill all these animals again and again and again, but I still need to keep killing them. When is there ever going to come a sacrifice whose blood works? I take this pill and it's gone. When is that sacrifice going to come? When is that blood going to be shed? He wants people to ask that question. There's signs pointing towards something. A destination. When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? The destination is Jesus, I would say. We're going to come to that. But for the moment, we have to realize that none of these sacrifices work. And if the sacrifices that God told people to offer don't work, then nothing else that people invent works either. This is where this comes home to us, because I doubt that any of us here have actually relied on on animal sacrifices to make us right with God. Probably not. But you realize that if God said, do these things as a pointer to something, here's the road, these are signs pointing to the destination... You can't say, well, these things don't work, so you know, I'm going to go off on my own and make up my own system. I think I'll just try to be a pretty good person. Enough of the sacrifices. I'll just not kill anybody and not steal anything really valuable, and I'll be okay. I think that'll make me okay with God. No, it won't. Nor can you go to the other extreme and say, I'm going to set up a really rigid religion with a whole bunch of rules, and I will follow them to the T. That will make me right with God. That won't either. You've got to stay on this road and walk all the way to the end, to the destination. It's important to realize because it is so human of us. It is so human of us to try to establish Some box that if we fit into it, we'll be good. And God says, no. You can't and you won't. We so much, strangely, we so much want to make a big net with a whole bunch of stuff in it. And if I carry it far enough, I'll be good. Or if you carry it far enough, you'll be good. You'll be good to go with God, fine with Him. No. It doesn't work. Nothing whatsoever apart from Christ. Not the sacrifices that God prescribed. Not the sacrifices that we make up. Nothing suffices to make us right with God. Nothing can take away sin. So what can? That moves us to the second point. This is the bulk of the passage, in fact. Verses 12 and following. That's where we need to camp out this morning. That's the negative. These priests and their regular offerings, all the offerings that we try to make up, none of that works to take away sin. So the contrast here, what does? Here's the second observation. Christ's single sacrifice is sufficient to make people perfect. Christ's single, once-offered sacrifice is sufficient. Nothing else is. Him all by himself, his sacrifice all by itself is sufficient, has power to cleanse everything in everyone forever. And then some. 
This sacrifice alone is sufficient. Verse 12. But when Christ, there's a contrast there. The book of Hebrews has been talking about how he's a different kind of priest. Well, here's a really different kind of priest who approaches the altar in a radically different way. He brings a sacrifice one time. He comes once and offers a sacrifice once for all, not just for four to six hours repeatedly, but one time for all, then says, it is finished, and he takes a seat. They're standing up and working. He's sitting down and resting. They're offering sacrifices again and again. He's done. And he's just waiting for the time when his absolute authority will be realized in the world. How is that? How does it come about? What's the difference? The, The difference lies in the nature of the sacrifice. In what is actually offered. To use the terms of the book of Hebrews. Not the blood of goats and bulls, nor the ashes of a heifer, nor the blood of calves and lambs and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. None of that can take away sin. None of it works. Because... The sin of human beings must be atoned for by the blood of human beings. And the perfect obedience required of human beings must come from human beings. You can't take out a person and put in an animal who never sinned because it has no conscience and no soul. And you can't take out its, and so it can't obey either. You can't substitute one for the other. It doesn't work. Human obedience is required. Human blood is required for disobedience. Which means that when we disobey, we can pay for it ourselves. Or, God could become man. That's unheard of. I mean, it's heard of. You've heard of it. But at the time, it was unheard of. We we could pay for it ourselves, or God, who's perfect, could become man. So then God can actually pull a switch with me, a switch that works. He can give to someone human obedience because he's in in flesh, he obeys. He can give human obedience, and he can take the punishment due to humans. He can switch with us if God would become man. Would he do that? He did. You've got to understand who Jesus is to understand the cross. Jesus is not just a human. He is God who became a human. He's God infinite, God eternal, God always existing, never created who at a point in time came to earth and took on a body. Why? For the sake of the cross. To obey, to give me obedience, to die, to take my punishment. There's a tremendous opportunity here. He really can come and pay for my sin. He really can give me perfect obedience. It's a marvelous thing. Hebrews 10, verse 10, right before our passage, talks about this sacrifice. It says, By that will, by the will of God, to send Christ, to put him in a human body, by that will, we have been sanctified. 
Now, grammatically, what that's saying is that there's a done deal there. By the will of God, we have been sanctified, done. That means cleaned, cleansed, made holy, made right, done. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once, and then he sits. Human blood offered for human sin. Human perfection given to people. And he sits down. Now, why, why can he do that? Verse 14 continues. Verse 14 explains why he sits. Because by this one sacrifice, he has perfected. It's the same idea as sanctified there in verse 10. He switches words here, but he's got the same idea. Again, grammatically, it's a done deal. He has perfected. Made people perfect. Who? Those who are being sanctified. You've got to follow this closely here because he uses the same word but changes tenses and so he's changing ideas. He's talking about people who are in a process of being sanctified, of being made holy. We're in an ongoing growth process. He's doing something to us, but he's already perfected us. He's growing us in holiness, but we're holy. Two things going on here. If you're a Christian, you know this. you've, You've thought about this. You hear this before. I'm in a process of growing. I am being made more holy, yes. But do you realize that you in God's sight are already perfect? You're being sanctified, and you're already sanctified. You're being grown, and you're already done. It's an amazing thing. And how does it come about? By this one sacrifice. Only, not any other way. Christ and his cross alone makes that reality in your life. In his eyes, you, if you're a Christian, are perfect, sinless, cleansed, holy, forgiven. You should glory in this. And if you're not a Christian, you should see there's a way that I can be made perfect in God's eyes. Apart from all that I do and all that I try to carry through life. It does not mean that we cease to be creatures when he makes us perfect. We're always going to be finite. We always have need for him. We always need to depend on him. It's talking about Change in your status before the bar of God's justice. And he looks at you and says, you are perfect in my eyes. Now, that does not mean, it does not mean a couple of important qualifiers there. It does not mean that sin doesn't matter, you can sin in any way you want to. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that he declares you perfect. Sit and think about that for just a second. We're going to talk about the response to that in a moment. But you've got to let that sink in. If you're a Christian, he sees you as clean. That's what he always was going to do. The new covenant was about that. 
the point of verses 15 and following. He says, this, is not, this shouldn't be a surprise. 700 years before Jesus, he told us he was going to do that. In the new covenant, there's going to come a time. He, he locates us back in this passage from Jeremiah. There was going to come a time when he was going to cleanse his people. He's going to bring in a new covenant. And after he kind of locates them back in that passage in verses 15 and 16, remember the place where he wrote about the new covenant? He's going to write in our hearts and minds, yeah, 17. Then after that, what did he add? The writer of Hebrews is underlining something. After that, he said to us, I will remember their sins no more. He's speaking about a case of divine amnesia here, if you will. God doesn't literally forget anything. He knows everything. But he's deciding, with my people, I'm going to wipe that sin away. I'm going to remember it no more. I will forget it. To use verse four, to use verse um, uh, 14's language, they will be perfected. To use verse 10's language, they'll be sanctified. Christian, the cross has done something marvelous for you. It has totally cleansed you. You're clean, pure, perfect in God's sight. And if you're not a Christian, do you see how this matches up against the great big net, the huge burden that you're trying to carry? You can let go of that and say, there's another way. There's another way that I can be made perfect here at the cross. This takes us to the third point, the response. Nothing whatsoever apart from Christ cleanses me. Christ alone can make a person perfect. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, the third point here is about response. How should we respond to the truth of Christ's single, sufficient sacrifice? And the obvious conclusion that we're supposed to reach from this is that Nothing apart from Christ should be trusted because nothing apart from Christ works. He and he alone can cleanse us. Not Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus plus other sacrifices. Not Jesus plus my obedience. Not Jesus plus my good efforts. Not Jesus plus my avoidance of lust or greed. Not Jesus plus my performance of certain rituals. Not Jesus plus my baptism. Not Jesus plus my missionary service. Not Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus stacked on top of anything else. Jesus only. Set all by himself. Jesus and his cross only makes one perfect. And so you're supposed to read that and say, if you have, to this point in your life, been living a Jesus-plus mentality, or maybe the Jesus-plus mentality minus the Jesus part, you're supposed to think, Jesus alone is who I'm supposed to grab hold of and trust. Not my works, not my effort. i got to let that go. Jesus alone will make me perfect. You're supposed to come to that conclusion. This is really good news. It's kind of hard news, too. It's really good news because the burden that you're trying to carry will crush you if you take it seriously. Try to be perfect constantly in thought, not just in deed. Try that for a little while. It'll crush you. And the good news is that you can let that go. 
and lay it aside and trust in Jesus to make you perfect before God, acceptable to Him, pleasing to Him, cleansed, obedient in His eyes. That's really good news. I read a story once about a local woman who was describing, in in her own words, was describing what it's like to carry this burden. She said, I feel like there is a load of bricks crushing the life out of me. Because there's a little more to do. Another meeting to go to, a little more kindness to do to other people, a little more service to render, a little more obedience. There's always a little more that I could do. And then after that, the grace of God will come meet me. And this says, no. Lay that down. The grace of God is instead of that. There's great hope here. There's good news. You need not be crushed. But it's hard news because that letting go of things takes an admitting in your own heart that, you know, I've been wrong up to this point. I've been chasing the wrong thing. I've been about something that now I see was in error. And I have to switch my hopes. And that's a humbling experience. And we human beings don't do humble real well. To say, you know, what I've been taught, what my family has taught me, what my whole culture has taught me, is wrong. And I've lived X years on that path. To let that go and switch over to Christ alone is very difficult. But it's required. If you want to be made perfect in God's eyes, nothing whatsoever apart from Christ, nothing whatsoever in addition to Christ can do it. He alone can. So obviously the call to you then from this text is trust Jesus alone. A lot of folks come to church on Easter who don't often think about spiritual things. Don't often come to official religious services. I don't know if that's you here this morning or not. But this passage holds out to you some great hope. And something kind of hard. To admit, I've been going down the wrong path. That's hard. But if you compare it to, but here's the right path and there's hope there and there's life there. I can find relief from the burden and I can find forgiveness and I can find a God who forgets my sin and makes me perfect in his eyes. While he works on me to grow me, yes, but he works, he works on me as seeing me, somebody who's already perfect in his eyes, accepted and loved. I can find that? Yes, you can. But not on the path that you've been walking so far. On the path that says Christ and Christ alone is the one I hope. So the call to you, obviously, is trust him. Turn to Him. Yield your heart to Him. Hope in Him only. If you do that, He'll come and live in you and give you life. So I plead with you today, Easter, is a great day to do that. Christ rose from the dead, you can too. But those who aren't Christians aren't the only ones who struggle with this. Other people, Christians, live Jesus plus lives too. Let me mention one verse. Try to get at this. Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's it's right on the same subject we're talking about here. 
You could take the forget sin, made perfect, sanctified, and you could put in there no condemnation. It's right in the same category of thought. There is therefore now no condemnation. So, you know that, you believe that, you revel in that, or do you? What happens in your heart when you sin today? Or what happened in your heart when you sinned last night or yesterday or the day before? What happens in your heart when you speak harshly to your spouse again? When you snap at your kids again? When you fall into lust or pornography again? You tell a little white lie at work or kind of bend the truth again? What happens in your heart? When, you're, when you realize that, when you're convicted by it, what do you do there? You're going to, that's going to happen to you. You still have a sin nature. You're going to sin. We still sin. What happens? Do you pull out the whip and flail yourself a little bit until you feel like, oh, that's sufficient. Now I've fixed that problem. Or, or do you mope? Kind of feel depressed and, and guilty until it kind of wears off and then you're kind of back to normal. Or are you like David who committed adultery and murder got caught, repented, and then worshipped. Which category more frequently describes you? Do you say, that's my sin? Repent and move to worship? Or do you say, that's my sin, load on the burden and walk with it for a little while until you can't carry it anymore, you decide, that's probably enough, and then worship? Which one characterizes you? You have to fight to believe the gospel that says, I am perfect in God's eyes. He accepts me. We are one. He loves me. He's forgotten my sin and wiped it away. Now, the important qualifier, obviously I'm not saying that sin does not have any consequences. Obviously, I am not saying that God doesn't discipline his people. You could flip ahead a couple of chapters and find that in Hebrews 12. Some discipline will involve the church. All of it must involve no condemnation, but love and grace. Obviously, he's growing us in holiness. So I'm not saying that we're just supposed to sin in any way we want to. No, no big deal, it doesn't matter. But when you sin, the key issue is, do you deal with it from a perspective of condemnation or from a perspective of perfection, forgotten, cleansed? Which, which way do you deal with it? It's the question for Christians here as they look at sin. You've got to believe the gospel for yourself, that I'm cleansed by the cross. And, to turn it a little bit, you have to believe the gospel for other people. Other Christians in your life. Now, this only applies to Christians here. If we were to talk about how we should view and how we should interact with non-Christians, we'd have to look at some other passages. There are principles in how Jesus dealt with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, very kind and gracious to them. But I'm only talking about how we deal with other Christians here. I'm going to use one example. You have to extrapolate it to others in your life. But let's use a marriage example. You're a Christian, suppose. Married to a Christian, suppose. 
Now, we've already talked about how you deal with your own sin, but how do you deal with your spouse's sin? And they're going to sin. Marriage is a place where you create tremendous vulnerability. And so when they sin against you, they get you. Because you've deliberately said, I let down my guard with you, which opens up all the weak spots. And when they stab you, it hurts. And that's going to happen. How do you respond to that? Do you tell them, I've got some things for you to do before I accept you again. I've got some load for you to carry. That's not good enough. Keep paying me, repaying me. Or do you view them from the perspective of God? You're perfect in his sight. Cleansed. Your sin is forgotten by him. Again, I am not telling you forget about the fact that sin has consequences. Some sin will involve discipline, maybe even discipline in extreme cases from the police department. Okay, I'm not unaware of that. But you can't proceed with condemnation and holding sin over people's head. You instead must view them from a perspective of you, spouse, Christian, In God's eyes, you're perfect. He's forgotten your sin. You're totally sanctified. Well, you're in the process of being sanctified. I get that. But I can't set myself on a higher throne than Christ and judge you and hold you off until you've worked your way back in. I forgive you. I forgive you. Christians, you have to deal with other Christians in that way too, be it in your marriage or in other relationships. If they're under Christ, they're perfect in God's eyes. And in some way, they should be in yours too. It changes how you deal with people. If you think that through, it changes things. Now you're going to say, as I do all the time, that's really hard. I don't know if I have that in me right now. Because I was really hurt by that or really offended by that. I don't know if I have that in me, which just points to the fact that you aren't holy either, are you? Thank goodness that that's covered under the blood of Christ and that he looks at you perfect through that too. Christians dealing with Christians under the the view of God's perfection. Christians dealing with themselves If you're not a Christian, coming to Christ so that you can be made perfect in his eyes. The fact that Christ has offered a single sufficient sacrifice to take care of sin matters in all these relationships. It'll change how you think about yourself and how you think about others. And I hope it draws you to Christ to place your faith in him. If you've been towing along behind you some massive net full of your past, your sins, your shortcomings, and you're trying to carry it and carry it far enough until you can become good enough. This passage says you can't do that and you don't have to do that. Lay it down at the cross. Leave it there and find perfection from Jesus, not in your own works. Christ's sacrifice alone 
can take away sin. So trust him. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.